The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, quit looking up "pop" in the Urban Dictionary and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 242 with guest Franz Boma, recorded live Tuesday, May 8, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter, and now, bringing the ASP.NET Masterclass on-site for your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows Forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who's living high on the hog, since he quit smoking, beef, Carl Franklin! Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's our Thursday show. This is Carl Franklin here, uh, as I am twice a week now. Every week, twice a week, and of course, Richard Campbell out there in Vancouver. Hey, man, what's up? Oh, you know, still plunking along, looking forward to TechEd. It's imminent, leaving this weekend. Yep, it's going to be fun. Hey, you know, this is, you know, summer is finally coming around, at least to Connecticut anyway, and it's coming early. Oh, it's here too. It's been awesome. The weather has been fabulous, and of course, that means barbecue and fires and all sorts of campfires and stuff. So while we were in... uh Canada, my friend Jed, who I told you about, who uh, he's the guy who um, is doing is doing the renovations here. Yeah, the studio renovations. Studio renovations, but he's also a great musician, and uh, he built me a fire pit in my backyard. Nice. Yeah. So I asked him to, of course, and before we left, we we're trying to decide where to put it, and so we decided to put it on the left side of the house because on the right side of the yard, you know, we have neighbors and stuff. That might not appreciate having a fire pit so close. So we, we actually thought about it quite a bit. We said, we want it here, right? Right. So about three days into the vacation, I called him and I said, Hey man, how's the fire pit? And he goes, I made an executive decision. <laughs> I moved it. I put it where you said you didn't want it. Nice. Oh, okay. Why? Yeah. And he actually did have good reasons. And as it turns out, he was right. Um, the place that it's in now is not in the way of anything. Uh, it's sort of back. There's more privacy. So it's a good spot, and our neighbors don't mind at all. 
And uh, best part about it is you can't see the party house, which is around the, you know, across the street diagonally where all the parties are. Oh, yeah. So anyway, now we get back and he's helping to clean out the garage and he's got a fire going. And my wife comes down and says, hey, have you seen my round table? And Jed says, uh, yeah. <laughs> no. What? He burned it? He burned it. <laughs> he burned it. Well, I needed some wood and that was looking pretty sorry. So you burned my table? <laughs> he burned it. He burned it. So I was giving him shit. So I came down the next day. And I sit in the garage, there's the body of my very first electric guitar, and I still keep it. And I said, hey, Jed, you see that guitar body up there? Yeah. Don't burn it. (laughs) Yeah, that would be bad. No, but all kidding aside. All right. Well, anyway, uh, we have some emails to read here. The first one is from Leon Bambrick. Uh, you might recall him uh, being a writer in previous versions of .NET Rocks. We have read an email are. from him before, I'm sure. Yes. And this one says, Sexy Spec Sharp. He says, nice. Hi, Richard and the Seaman. Great show on <laughs> Spec Sharp. I'm really glad you covered this topic as it is one of those interesting research projects that none of us ever have the time to look into personally. I hope that simple, verifiable pre- and post-conditions can be included in a future version of C-sharp. Won't that be sweet? Yes. It'd be sweet in VB2, man. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> or is there something ironic about Microsoft Research spending a lot of effort to create non-nullable reference types while the other teams have spent so much effort creating nullable value types? <laughs> There's that, definitely two separate directions going here, and right? And I love this. He says, that question is a good one if you're trying to impress the ladies. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's kind of like the blank stares I get when I tell them I'm writing a pluggable sockets framework, you know? And everybody's Can eyes you do that in over. public? Yeah. Also, in regards to the .NET Rocks fitness program, let me say this. Anytime I do any exercise whatsoever... I listen to .NET Rocks, yet I am still a fat bastard, and this is no help whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) That's because he only exercises once a month. (laughs) If, however, the converse were true, and any time I listen to .NET Rocks I exercised, I would be a true coding athlete. Thinking about this logical conundrum has given me a headache, and all this talk of exercise makes me hungry. I love this line. He says, it must be donut o'clock already. (laughs) Oh, kind regards, Leon Bambrick. Oh, man. Oh, we have too much fun, don't we? (laughs) All right. I got an email. This is from Craig Shearer about the ORM Smackdown. Hi, Richard and Carl. Thanks for the ORM Smackdown show. I certainly enjoyed it, so much so that I listened to it twice. Mostly because by the end of the first listening to it, I was left wondering just exactly what Ted was arguing for or against. You know, I wonder that about Ted all the time. It was late. (laughs) It was late. (laughs) In the end, he seemed to concede that ORM was a good idea, but most of his anti-ORM arguments were pretty much theoretical. And then he just lost the plot, I thought, by jumping onto the object database with DB4O. Surely, as Oren pointed out, he's just shifting the problem from one boundary to another. And, of course, as a sidebar here, 
every application has ugliness in it. The question is, do you know where yours is? Yeah. As somebody who spent a great deal of time in the object database world in the past, I can attest to how crappy they are at querying and reporting and performance, too. And as for replicating to a relational database, you're left with a similar mapping problem, if not worse. You have to use a single vendor's often crappy tools to map the object schema into relational schema. I thought Oren did a pretty good job defending ORM in general and nHibernate in particular. I was extremely impressed with Oren in that English isn't his first language and that he stood up to Ted pretty well, especially in the face of Ted's you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong tirade. (laughs) (laughs) And I would also point out that if you look at the photograph, Oren doesn't have trouble standing up to anybody. He is a very large man. He's a big boy. Big, big, big. They grow him big over in Israel. For sure. Yeah. Thanks for the great show, and I'm looking forward to hearing Franz Buma speak. Sincerely, Greg Shearer, Auckland, New Zealand. And hey, isn't today's show Franz Buma? It is, as a matter of fact. Wow, what a plan. And, you know, before we get to that, I just want to say, uh, just to mention that, I, th- you know, first of all, it wasn't Ted's fault that he got on the object database thing. I brought that up because, um, you know, that is a direction to go in. And although the vendor software might suck right now, I think that's... I personally think, after listening to that whole thing, that that's a place where effort should be uh, put into just because it makes such a clean break. And I wouldn't report off of an object database ever. So anyway, um, and I also thought that uh, Oren was great. He was awesome. He had great points. But, you know, Ted's just he's holding up the warning flag. I think that's what he was there to do. He never said that ORMs were bad. That's true. He never did. All right, let's uh, crank up the Code Camp music here. Woohoo! Shall I lead off, Mr. Franklin? Yes, you shall. All righty then. Now on June 23rd, that's a Saturday, the Raleigh Code Camp at shrinkster.com slash P-E-B. And also in Reading in the UK, it's the Developer, Developer, Developer Conference on June 30th, which you can read about at shrinkster.com slash P-8-0. Also, Greg Brill is still hiring people in New York City. He's assembling the team of teams. Uh, If you'd like to work in Manhattan for a year and uh, live rent-free for a year in Manhattan, check it out at shrinkster.com slash kh6. All right, Richard, let's introduce Franz Boma. He started programming in 1986 on a Toshiba MSX-1 at the age of 16. After graduating with a bachelor's degree in computer science from the Hochschule Enschede in the Netherlands in 1994, he started working with 4GL systems and post-relational databases like Universe. In 1996, he founded Solutions Design, a company for database-driven web application development. As the lead developer, he developed medium-to-large enterprise web applications using SQL Server, AS400, Com Plus, Visual C++, Visual Basic, and ASP. In 2001, Solution Design produced a content management system completely based on Microsoft technologies like SQL 2000, Com Plus, VCC, VB6, and ASP. In 2002, Franz developed in C Sharp his first .NET application, the open-source LLBL Gen code generator for SQL Server store procedures and .NET classes. Due to the worldwide success of LLBL Gen, Franz designed and developed in 2003 for Solutions Design the OR Mapper and Code Generator LLBL Gen Pro, which is currently one of the market-leading data access solutions for .NET, C Sharp, and VBNet. 
Franz received for his community efforts the MVP award for C Sharp in 2004, 2005, 2006, and 2007, and works full time on LLBL Gen Pro enhancements. In 2006, HND, a full-featured support system and forum system for ASP.NET 2.0, was released as open source under the GPL, written and designed by Franz himself. Welcome, Franz Boma. Oh, thank you guys for uh, having me on the show. Uh, it's our pleasure. I, I had no idea LLBL Gen was the first .NET program that you wrote. Yeah, actually, it was my test program for uh, learning C Sharp. Wow, that's uh, great. So when I started uh, in 2002 with Visual Studio 2002, I uh, thought, well, they have all the nice uh, data tables and data sets, and let's start it um, uh, with that. And I was thinking that they would uh, generate the store procedures for me. But um, that wasn't the case, so right. I uh, started the code generator for me. for. Uh, First for myself, but uh, a couple of guys asked from, uh, for the, uh, the, the tool, so I released it on the internet. So you know, it's funny. One of the first programs I wrote in .NET and VBNet was a sort procedure generator. It was oh. very, very, you know, it was very uh, sc- scaled down and just did the job. But but it was exactly I was think thinking the exact same thing. So LLBL Gen, this is uh, quite a juggernaut now. Wait, I got to find out where the name came from. Yeah. That's not the most <laughs> obvious name you've ever heard. I was actually expecting that to be the first question you would ask. <laughs> <laughs> well, let um, me guess. Let me guess. Wait a minute. They're the first. Okay. They're the initials of the names of your cats. No, no. It, it, it was the only domain name that was left. What? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. No, I, actually, I, I had to cook up a name for the for the public release. I was sit there, sitting there and I said, "Well, lower level business logic layer generator. That has to be it." So, because that's actually what it was doing. So, right. I put oh. all the, together all the 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 first layers. Okay. Gen at the end. So that was basically the 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 name. So you don't and have any cats then? I have one. <laughs> <laughs> You know, um, in a recent show, somebody, you know, we've been talking a lot about ORM systems. Yeah. And in a recent show, somebody, um, compared and hibernate to LLBL Gen Pro and, and gave you glowing, uh, remarks. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially because and hibernate doesn't do so well with existing databases. Whereas your product will take a database and model it in the business layer and bring it all the way up to the developer. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Tell us a little bit about the experience of using it. I mean, you don't have to take us through every click and, you know, option, but, you know, how generally does it work from the installation to getting your business layer up and running? Well, basically, you uh, start the designer. That's uh, the starting point. And then you uh, start the project and you pick one of the databases that's supported. Well, for example, if you're... uh, if, if you want to use a SQL Server database, you pick the SQL Server uh, driver. And then you simply fill in the connection parameters. It will pull up all the, the catalogs uh, you have access to, uh, the user you filled in. And then you can uh, select uh, one or more catalogs, for example, Northwind and other uh, catalogs. 
um, and it will pull all the schema elements into the, the project. And from then on, you're uh, disconnected from the database, and you can map entities onto the tables. Okay. Or views, or uh, uh, map uh, calls to store procedures. And when you say you can map them, do you mean there's a user interface to do that, a programmatic interface, or...? No, it's a it's a visual uh, uh, tool. The, ma- the mapping is not uh, what you would expect. Like, uh, oh, I want to f- I want to define an entity and I want to map it on this table, and this field has to map on this table because that's very cumbersome and time consuming. Hmm. So I did it from the other side because if you uh, want to map a customer entity onto a customer table, you just pick the customer table and say, well, I, I want to create a new entity. So you right click on uh, Entities uh, node in the project, and you say, "Well, give me the entities uh, right. that are in the the project, and it will unlist all the the, uh, the entities it, it finds. And you can select them, uh, the one you want, and it will create the entities for you. And then, if you want to have inheritance, for example, like uh, you have person, employee, customer, what have you." Um, and the inheritance is modeled in a database uh, using um, one-to-one relations over the primary key, for example. You can find them automatically. So it finds uh, inheritance hierarchies uh, automatically for you. And then you're basically done. Then you can say, uh, generate my code, and then you're uh, done. Okay. So it's fairly straight ahead. It's yeah. uh, It sounds like a, sort of like a wizard kind of interface, or is that... Now you have you have all kinds of uh, um, things to to uh, to manipulate the mappings. For example, if you don't want certain fields in your entities, you can uh, exclude them. Okay. Um, create new relationships between entities, for example, or rename fields and that kind of stuff. Now, the big thing for me, I think, is this uh, tolerance to change that I've got guys going in and doing work on my database as well. Is it totally round trippable? Can I make changes on the code side that are going to be shown in the database and vice versa? No, it's uh, from the database. Uh, the philosophy behind the tool is that, uh, you work in a team and there's one or two guys who are designing the database for you. For example, the, the, the system analysts or the, the database managers. And they design, uh, um, the tables and views and uh, those elements for you, and you use them in your code. Right. Uh, so the, the the designer is uh, has a project refresher uh, component. So when you so when the DBA says, "Well, I've changed some some tables of views and, and added a couple of fields," you just point your um, you just load your project, say refresh the the catalog that was changed, and it will migrate the project automatically to the uh, new metadata. Okay. You can, mm. generate, you can generate the new uh, code, and it will uh, automatically reflect the changes. And I think this is a significant philosophical issue around the various ORM products. LLBLGen right. is a database and, and database-skilled uh, people-centric tool in the sense that you need people who know how to work in the database to do your changes and so forth to the data, and then LLBLGen works with that those changes. Yeah, well, it, it's it looks very different, but actually, it's uh, it's not really very different from uh, a ph- uh, philosophy point of view, because um, um, I don't know if you know the the uh, relational modeling um, 
methodology uh, NEOM or uh, ORM, object role modeling. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, what LBLGen does is actually reverse engineering your uh, data model to that level. Right. So, um, and what you're doing with an, an Hibernate entity is if you write in classes and you generate the tables from those classes, you're actually modeling uh, the model in the classes at the same level. Yes. So instead, the N-hibernate approach seems to be build the classes and the data will come. And you're right. saying build the ER, build the database from an ER diagram and that diagram is manifest in the classes. And yeah. you, you, you also said that the changes are reflected when you make changes. I got to imagine that must be hard to do because, and, yeah. yeah. So sometimes you cannot make a decision like, like uh, you've renamed two tables and you switch the names, for example. Uh, it's very hard to find the, r- the right table uh, to map the entity on again. So um, there's options like show me all the, the renamed tables so I can pick them by hand, for example. Because yeah. uh, you don't want uh, three tables that are switched na- names and the, 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 the refresher will simply say, oh, well, uh, everything was fine. And you generate code and... Uh, the class you have is actually mapped onto another table, so you you see it at runtime, for example. So that um, that kind of features are are built in, but it, it's it's very hard. Yes, it took me a while to uh, to actually get it right. Yeah, and you're still working on it. You say you're working on it full time. Yeah, I'm working full time on the, on the new features. Uh, first. Three years or so, we're mostly uh, getting the positions right. Uh, like um, uh, everything you think about, like uh, well, entities have to go to the database from the database uh, to delete weird graphs, or fetch uh, weird graphs with all kind of filters uh, at multiple levels. Yeah. But after a while, you have that covered and then you were starting adding uh, code on top of it like um, validation and what I'm now building is uh, authorization auditing uh, I have now uh, dependency injection functionality built in for the next version oh nice so, so actually yeah because there are a couple of very good uh, dependency injection frameworks out there but a lot of people don't know them or are afraid to use yet another framework for just dependency injection. Well, let's talk about the frameworks that are out there. There's there's no end, it seems, to the amount of no. uh, <laughs> ORM projects out there. Yeah. And not only that, but out of Microsoft, you've got, you know, the Entities Framework for ADO Net coming. You've got Link and D-Link coming. Yep. You know, um, what do you... How do you how do you process all that stuff? I mean, do you say in the back of your mind, "Oh, yeah, I'm going to have to make sure that I work alongside with these guys or in lieu of them"? Do you foresee like uh, sales dropping off when the entities framework hits? I mean, you, you know, where does your product fit uh, in the Microsoft suite of products? Well, when uh, Link and D-Link were introduced, I saw the feature set and I was well. Um, I have all that, so it's not, <laughs> it's not yeah, what can I say? <laughs> Except of Link, because Link is not right. uh, yeah. it, a nice feature to have in, in, in your program language. Yeah. To specify what you want in a unified way so you can do it 
in C-sharp and whatever uh, layer is beneath it, it will work. Do you see yourself taking advantage of Link in the product itself? Yes, absolutely. We're, we're planning in the fall to have a library for uh, support for Link for LBL. Okay. Right. I, I seem to recall I read somewhere that Iende made a, pro, a Link provider for in Hibernate as well. So this yeah, idea of yeah. uh, using that language to be able to query against your RM is quite yeah. feasible. Well, and it's D-Link, I think, that steps on you a little bit more and possibly the Entities framework, right? Yeah, when I saw the, the first publication of the Entity framework, I was really worried because um, it looked so great. Because all the, 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 the features I think, well, should be in an OR map or, or in a persistence framework, we're there. And the philosophy was right. And I thought, well, if they pull this off, I'm really uh, in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Do you still think that? Well, no. and, they, and they've now announced that they've pushed the entity uh, framework out of uh, .NET 3.5, at yeah. least for now, anyway. Out of meaning it's going to be a, a separate thing later? Yeah. But the, um, what I find a bit strange is that uh, it's so big, uh, the, the feature set and the scope is so massive that um, if you want a, a huge acceptance, you have to provide earlier on uh, a version that will do some for something for uh, for for the users. So right. They can they they can uh, uh, see how it works and. Learn, learn step by step how uh, the, the 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 death of, of of the feature set, and then they can build on top of it. But if you st- if you start pushing it back, just because it's not nice enough, for example, because it it doesn't contain uh, all thousand and one features, um, no one will uh, pick it up later. Right. Because if you see, well, they will publish the the the, the library in in first half of two thousand eight. Who will download that? Only the, the early adopters. It will right. take years because uh, not a lot of people read all the websites or blogs or something. I just find it, you know, when we interviewed Dan Simmons about the Entity Framework, one of his major focuses was keep the byte small. Start with a smaller subset of features. Yeah. But you're right. Now, when you look at the feature set that they have on that, it almost seems like Microsoft is unable to do anything small. Yeah, I listened to that show uh, yesterday again, and um, you said a, a, a great thing. Uh, why should everything within Microsoft be a product? And this yeah. this is an excellent example how it can be a project, because it's actually not something they can earn money on uh, in the first couple of years. It's just a, an add-on library for .NET developers. You can do it this way or you can do it that way. Either way, it will work. Right. So if you pick if you pick this uh, .NET the data set to store procedures, you can do it. If you if you want to do the entity framework, you can do it too. So right. Uh, and what what is also surprising is that they focused on um, uh, the model. They 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 want to have the model uh, syntax all be very very good before they move on. Um. If it takes so long to get it right, I don't know what's up, what they're doing, but should it take that long to, to get a mapping model right? The, the, should it take that long to get a mapping model uh, for this system? 
I don't understand that. Well, they have lots of other things that they need to consider as well. I mean, they've got backward compatibility to worry about. They've got compatibility with all the other stuff that they're doing. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I can see how, you know, something that is taken by itself is fairly simple can turn into a big project. The, yeah. the thing that I hit on, and Franz, you were at the MVP Summit. Were you yeah. in the room when they were talking about the ADO.net frame, uh, entity framework? No, unfortunately not. I, oh, you I, missed that one. Yeah, I heard it when I was back uh, back back home because um, my plane left early Thursday. And at Wednesday evening, I heard, well, this tomorrow there's an entity framework session. And I thought, well, that would be the session to be, but <laughs> I couldn't miss my plane. So, and it, and it was a lot of fun. But, you know, one of the interesting points they made there, and I think you even touched on this a little bit with your blog post on this topic, was there's two teams here that are focused on the Entity Framework. There's the ADO.net guys, and there's also yeah. SQL Server. And that yeah. was brought up in that meeting was this idea that, you know, SQL Server needs a way to define, you know, transactions across... Uh, replication and things like that that mm-hmm. the entity framework would support. And I got to think, anytime you get stuck between two teams at Microsoft, you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, I asked around uh, at the MVP summit uh, what they would do. And obviously, they wouldn't tell me, but um, well, the announcement that they would push back entity frameworks as enough, I think. But actually, it. it, it it's nice for the C-sharp guys that they finally get their their work out because it must be really frustrating for them to have five years or so working on the uh, object spaces and it was scanned and sure. it was scanned and now, now another doom is looming for them. Because <laughs> well, and it's just postponed. They haven't canned anything no, yet. No, okay. <laughs> well, yeah. It must still be very frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing like shipping software to really find out how good it is and what it what it how it's going to be used. Yeah, um, you of course uh, when you have to solve a problem uh, with a routine and you manage to do that, it's satisfying. But at the end of the day, you have all the code and and you've talked about a lot of features that has to be in there for all the customers, and then there there are no customers at all. So that yeah, I can't imagine to have that. Twice, if uh, if you have it once in 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 a project team, okay, if it's scanned, but twice, no. Yeah, and it, then I would move on. Yes, yeah, yeah, and that's a sort of a career decision versus a product or you know project decision. Two different yeah. things. So, are you ready for the big news? Telerik is taking the wraps off four new product updates: Rad controls for ASP.NET, Rad controls for WinForms the first official version of the Telerik reporting tool, and a brand new suite codenamed Rad Controls Prometheus. And you guys think I don't sleep. Telerik's tools have always been great, but I think this time they've outdone themselves. Well, here are the details. Prometheus is built on top of Microsoft ASP.NET Ajax, and it'll become the successor of Rad Controls for ASP.NET. Just as ASP.NET Ajax will be the future of ASP.NET, Rad Controls Prometheus represents the future direction of all new Telerik development tools. This new suite of controls will also pave the way for seamless integration with Microsoft Silverlight, formerly WPFE. The WinForm suite aims for the stars with powerful new grid, chart, and tree view controls. 
For me, it seems like a major player on the WinForms market. Another intriguing addition to Telerik's portfolio this spring is Telerik Reporting. The product introduces a new level of development experience, which Telerik collectively calls easeability, a naturally intuitive mouse-only approach to generating Windows, Web, and PDF reports. And if that's not enough, go to www.telerik.com to check out what's new with Telerik's renowned RAD controls for ASP.NET. So, Franz, I'm fascinated. You started out LLBL Gen as just a, a giveaway product online. Uh, tell me a bit about how you turned it into a commercial product. Well, actually, it was uh, during the uh, first year of, uh, of the open source one. I had a lot of requests for uh, additional features, and I didn't have the time to, to build it in. Because you had uh, to make a living. Yeah, because the, the the website business wasn't really good, so uh, we decided to to uh, scrape all the fund all, all the money we have and fund our own uh, development for nine months, I think. Yeah. So I thought, well, may let let's start a bigger version of the open source one with store procedures as the main point. Yeah, I really loved store procedures. Right. So. Um, I started as a store procedure designer, uh, but after three months or so, I uh, I hit the wall because um, it was so it it was starting so complex to become so complex uh, because what I wanted was a sort of DSL for store procedures, um, but actually there is just one DSL for store procedures and that's SQL. Right, so, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> that wasn't going anywhere, so uh I um I cut it off and start over. So um basically with about twenty percent of the code and then I re- wrote uh, a full mapping layer. Okay. Um for Northwind and then I turned it into a runtime library and templates and code generator and designer. And it was uh, pretty hard work because uh, um, <laughs> the funding was running out. <laughs> yeah, the money's uh, going down and the product's not finished. No, so I was very pleased that uh, the last week of money we had, uh, I, I was done. So released it and was a success from the start. So it was a uh, it was a big gamble, but it was uh, yeah, it was very rewarding. Rewarding. And, and your price is quite reasonable: two hundred and twenty-nine euros. And what do I get yeah. for that? Is that per developer? Yeah, that's per developer, yeah. We, okay. We, we had uh, a license for uh, a department for version one. Um, I thought, well, the philosophy that the Japanese had in the 70s with their cars, uh, cheap cars, uh, flood everyone with our cars, so everybody is uh, driving our cars, and then we pull up the price a bit. So, um right. And I, I, uh, I thought, well, that will be a reasonable approach for uh, for this tool as well because um, Visual Studio isn't really expensive when you compare it to, uh, yeah, to a development tool. So right, yeah, it's, you, it's it's really expensive except compared to every other development environment. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it seems to me like the price is quite reasonable, and of course, discounted when you have more developers uh, yeah, buying at yeah. once. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, now we're in uh, uh, on the per developer base, but still support is free. 
we have an excellent support team uh, who's working 24 hours. Uh, not individually, but in shifts. <laughs> yeah. And um, uh, I'm a firm believer that support uh, should be free because uh, it's actually our, our work uh, that's bought by by our customers, and if something is wrong, for example, they, or, or we didn't explain something right in the, in the in, in the manual, the customer should be able to ask us uh, um, before paying us for additional support. Because if we uh, if we make a, if we make a mistake, it shouldn't be the the, the customer's problem. So. Right, of course. Yeah. Well, they, that's getting harder to find these days when you, with the bigger organizations. Pretty much it's yeah. always the customer's fault with them. Yeah, <laughs> let's not name names, but uh, <laughs> there are a couple of big corporations with uh, who sell software. Um, I don't think their uh, support scheme is very good. Uh, and also you see it in the smaller uh, development uh, ISVs. Uh, they're now... Also, starting subscription models like uh, you you buy a license for a year, or you buy, you buy support for a year. And right. I always wonder, well, what will happen if a, a year plus one day something breaks down and you need support? Do we have to pay another year just to get a bug fixed? I mean, or uh, or, or do I have to pay for the upgrade because the bug is fixed in that upgrade? Right. The only way to get the bug fixed is to buy the upgrade. Yeah. yeah. That's that really a, unfair. A very silly uh, philosophy. So, do you, Franz, do you have any other projects on the back burner that you're just dying to do? In in the case that the entity framework does come out and you, you find yourself, you know, not selling any product anymore, <laughs> <laughs> you have a backup plan. I guess what I'm saying. Of course, yeah, yeah, we have a backup plan. Yeah, the, what I was saying, the 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 when anti framework documents also were. Uh, were released and they released more uh, more uh, information about it. We have we obviously had to uh, rethink our strategy. Yeah. Uh, but it soon became clear that um, what they are offering is actually a persistence uh, solution and not an entity management solution. Ah. So um, when you actually think about all the other stuff you want to do with an entity, for example, validation or authorization or auditing. Like uh, the, the entity object is moving through your application from from a button to to the UI. Something is changed and it goes back to the database. You right. want to have auditing what has changed by whom, and right. uh, if the user isn't authorized, should he see the credit card number column or of a field, or should he be able to create a new entity, for example? Right. And all that stuff should be very easy to implement. So. Uh, that's the, the the main focus for for us uh, in the uh, next couple of uh, months. So you're you're hanging in there. You're you're going to uh, yes. You have a better product as far as you're concerned, and and uh, people are using it and they like it. So so what? There's room for more than more than one, right? Yeah, of course, and of course we're uh, because our designer um, we think is pretty solid, but yeah, can. Uh, if we add some more features, we can also, uh, for example, do model first. Mm-hmm. So that's the main thing that uh, lives in the in Hibernate world. So you first define the model, and then you uh, generate classes and, for example, uh, the database from it. Right. Um, and because our code generator is task-based, we have a, a hierarchy of mm-hmm. tasks that can run. So you can also... Uh, 
add a, an Ibernate template set and generate an Ibernate template uh, classes and mappings, for example. Uh-huh. We're looking into that direction. And also, of course, the um, uh, empty framework stuff, because their, their uh, designer is, uh, isn't yet ready. Yeah, I, I was just thinking, you guys have a very key feature over the Microsoft solution. You're shipping. Yeah, that is a good feature. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I actually need to build software now. I need products now. Richard has a way of putting it all into perspective for us. (laughs) (laughs) I'm amazed at how many people forget that shipping's a feature. Like, it's an incredibly hard thing to actually get software out the door. Yeah. It really is. it's tempting to, to just add just another feature because, oh, that customer was also complaining about this. Oh, maybe it just takes one or two days. Let's build it in. Yeah, a couple right. more and a couple more and a couple more. And- yeah. Well, I would lie if I say that we don't have that as well. Because well, you can do it, though, because you have a version one out there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Two, actually, so. yeah, you're up to two now. 2.1? Well, I, mean, yeah. I mean, you've shipped. Is what yeah. I mean. You can now. You can start adding features. Yes. Yeah. yeah like Whereas if you keep pool. adding features and not shipping anything, I I was involved in a software company where that was the basic plan to just anytime we gave the testers a build that passed or yes. passed enough, you know what I mean, to get out the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the the people would come downstairs and said, "Okay, that's great. Now do this." But we got to ship. Oh no, no, not yet. You know. <laughs> I think that's also uh, why more and more people um, try to use uh, test-driven development because um, then you don't have to – then because you always have a working version. It's maybe not the, 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 the working version uh, the manager uh, wants uh, to sell on the market, but you have a working version. You, so if uh, it's necessary to ship, you can. Yes, and, and yeah, that style where pretty much you could ship at any time is an yeah. interesting model. I don't think it always works, but it's a it's a clever idea of being yeah. ready to ship at all times. Yeah. Uh, I want to jump back a little bit. You touched on this briefly in the whole concept of the entity object and so forth around change tracking. Because mm-hmm. I think it's another part of this issue uh, with the uh, entity framework that Microsoft's working on. And I know it's yeah. something you've addressed deeply in LLBL, Jen. Maybe we just need to talk about why change tracking is so important yeah. here. Well, change tracking is uh, uh, important because if you use a disconnected model, for example, you have multiple peers or multiple servers, um, and your entity is fetched on one level and used at another and it comes back. But what happens if the, the, the context or session object that lived there initially uh, isn't there anymore? So you have to create a new one. And that session doesn't know if the entity that's coming in is new or changed or, uh, or fetched. And if it, if, if it isn't new, which field were, fields were changed? So if, if you say, well, I don't care which fields were changed, I just save and update every field. That's okay, but if you have uh, an entity of uh, 100 or 200 fields, and I've seen those, um, you're not really happy because uh, then all the fields go to the database for update. Right. Even if you have changed just one field, for example. 
Yeah, so you need to have some intelligence around that if you're going to be efficient. Yes, yeah, you, you have some kind of, of tracking in in the entity object, um, which tracks which fields were changed. So when it gets back to a session or context object to, to get persisted, it can just say, well, these fields were changed, or I'm not changed at all, so skip me. So that's very efficient for the for the context as well, and also uh, it relieves the uh, it solves. How do you say it? Um, it doesn't um, force the developer to write the code for. Uh, well, this entity is isn't new, so uh, I have to reattach it and tell the, the context that it isn't new, for example. Right, check yeah. it back in again. So, I mean, it's an interesting point here. Change tracking has to happen somewhere, and yes. it best happens in the ORM layer, in the entity objects. Yes. But, so you uh, got to take responsibility for it. I think so, yes. Yeah, because also uh, when, you, uh, when you use a disconnected model over uh, remoting, for example, uh, you clearly don't don't have a session or context object at all. So uh, the client receives an entity, uh, displays it in, a, in the UI, the, the, the user changed, changes a couple of fields, presses save, so the entity goes back to the server. What will happen there? Um, right. When you have change tracking in the entity, the entity knows uh, which fields were changed, for example. So. And this is ultimately going to be a scalability feature, which yeah. is always the complaint of ORMs is that you can't, they test fine, but you can't scale them up. They're not good enough for production code. Yeah. I always uh, take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. <laughs> Fight back and prove it one way or the other. <laughs> yeah. Everybody can say, well, this doesn't scale or that doesn't scale. I mean, of course, if you have a, 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 a server farm with a lot of uh, servers, services and you're uh, you're connecting to service a to pull uh, a customer object out and you change it and you save it and you send it to service b because uh, the load balancer thinks that's more efficient and service b doesn't know anything about your initial fetch so right you have to have change tracking in the entity. Object. Yeah, you suddenly have caching issues around all of that as well. And this sort of yeah. walks into the next topic, which is the whole preload, lazy load mapping scenarios. Yes. Yeah, there's an interesting uh, um, fuzziness going on about la lazy loading because uh, when you take, for example, uh, domain-driven design, yes. you use repositories and aggregate routes and the repository knows about uh, how to get um, an entity uh, out of the database, for example, or from disk or from a service. Um, but when you lazy load, you don't call into the repository. You just dive directly into the persistence layer. Right. So um, actually, it's a it's a backdoor. It's a shortcut to the database. Then why do we call it lazy? It sounds like the quick way. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> well, lazy, is a, I think the name comes from the fact that uh, you, you don't have to write code at all. It just happens. Right. Ah, I see. But uh, actually, there's another uh, problem with this, and that's uh, when you have a huge uh, project team, and for example, a couple of guys are working on a UI and have to call the the business tier. They are not allowed to do any persistence at all. Right. 
And if you hand them uh, a customer entity, for example, which has an orders collection, they can um, pull the orders into uh, their UI without calling the business tier. Right. Because they just access the, the collection and automatically it's fetched. Ah. This one's got to get into issues when you talk about securing the entities. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So um, there has to be a way to switch it off or not have it at all. Yeah. Uh, but and then the other side of this is the whole preload, that sort of eager method where you grab yeah. all this data up front even though often you don't need it. Yeah, that's, uh, that's often... Uh, uh, I, you don't know... Uh, when you write the code, which entities you do need at runtime. Right. So some say, well, I need lazy loading because um, my customer or my client will use just a couple of order records from, from the, 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 the orders collection. So I want to fetch them uh, when I need them. And others will say, well, no, I I know how to uh, which data I I need upfront, so I just write a couple of uh, um, prefetch paths or spans, or how you call it, in your uh, OR mapper, um, to, to fetch all the, 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 the data eagerly, of before I need it. Yeah. I don't think there's, that there's, a, there's a silver bullet to say, well, just use this and it will always work. Or yeah, there's no one right... Always, no. No one right way there. It depends no. on the app. No, but I think the the, the um, security, with, which I meant by with uh, the, these guys, are, are not allowed to, to do persistence um, with repositories. If you have, have to use repositories, you can bypass them with lazy loading. I think those things are more important than uh, a couple of uh, extra records read from the database. You know, you bring up security, Franz. That's uh, That's got to be a, an issue for some people. Um, security to the database from the code DBAs. Mm-hmm. Do, do, is there ever any clashes of power over over uh, using a tool like a like an ORM uh, system such as LBL Gen? Well, in the past, I had a, uh, several emails from from uh, customers who say, "Well, we we purchased a license, but now we have to fight with the DBA who doesn't want us uh, to use the tool." And, Right. I, I had to write a recommendation that it was okay and, and, and wouldn't hurt them and all kind of stuff. But um, it's funny because it strikes me that LLBL Gen is like the most DBA friendly ORM tool I've seen. It'll use my stored procedures. It'll reflect my changes in the database. I mean, how much more does the DBA want? Well, it yeah, probably also will generate store procs for the yeah. ones that aren't there, though, right? Well, write a template and you can actually. So sure, it's not. It's not really um, uh, hurting them, but I think what's what's more bothering them is that um, if a tool can write all the SQL for them, what what's left for them? Uh, <laughs> also, well, don't you it, think? Also, don't you think another issue they have is that you know because the a person didn't write it, there's no accountability. So the DBA will come to a meeting and say. Okay, who owns this store procedure? And then read off some name that was generated by your tool, and everybody look at each other. Like, yeah. Huh? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Okay. That that can be a problem. But what I would like to see is that the DBA is more of a consultant to the to the developers and work together in a project team. 
right. to, uh, to create the best uh, source code because uh, the DBA obviously knows which table will be very big and which table has the, the indexes. And for example, it, uh, the, the choice between a subquery and a join, it can make uh, life very easy if you have that choice. Right. And if a DBA says, well, I would do a subquery here because a join will be very expensive. And then um, the developer can choose for that option and the, the application will be better. But if a DBA sits back and says, well, I, I know it, but I won't tell you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know the DBAs I've worked with. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I've worked with a couple too. so I'm sure most, lots of them uh, listen to the show okay, as well. But, um, most DBAs are okay. And certainly the ones that listen to .NET Rocks are okay. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> now, let, let me say that um, I'm not... I'm not having personal things against DBAs or people who like store procedures and all that kind of stuff because it, at the end of the day, we all have to ship software. Yes. Like, uh, Richard said uh, a moment right. ago. And um, if, it, if it's better for the, for the company to ship it in, uh, in store procedures with, with data tables, yeah. Yeah. Use that because if that thinking matches uh, the thinking of... of, of how everybody wants to work. Like, uh, if everybody thinks in tables and, and SQL, you can try really hard to sell them entities and objects and, 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 and queries written in C-sharp, but I think it will be a long struggle. Now, you know, we've talked to Kathleen Dollard quite a bit about code generation. In fact, mm-hmm. she was the first real code generation guru that we talked to on the show. And she's written her own stuff, but she's also used your uh, tools, I believe. And... Um, we asked her, you know, what kind of, when you go into a project, cause she's in the consulting business, right? When you go into a project and you start and you're not using code generation, and, and then on another one you are, like, how much time are you saving? How much savings are you seeing in similar projects when you use code generation? And she said something remarkable. She said about 30 to 40% of the time can be saved with yeah. uh, a code generator. you think that's still an accurate um, figure or do you think it's gone up or down? Or um, well, I think it's roughly around that that um, that number. It depends, of course, also on the project and sure. uh, the, the, um, the power of your templates because if you have to do a lot of custom things like... Um, um, now, a brief phrase that if you have a lot of uh, standard things like a very similar-looking UI forms, for example, you can put code generation to the to it and it will generate much more code uh, compared to a project which has uh, very complex forms and complex code to, to, to write. Uh, I always see code generation as a form of uh, typing. Yeah. Uh, initially, you have to type 100% of the code and now you put code generation in and you type 70% or 60% of the code. That's it. Sure. And some people will say, will see code generation as a different form of developing software, but I don't think it should be treated that way. Well, I mean, Scott Hanselman says it all the time. The ASP.NET is perhaps the most widely used code generator. VisualStudio.net is a big code generator. Yeah, absolutely. And in 2.0, you know, 2005, .NET 2.0, it really is a code generator. I mean, it's really doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes and, Hiding yeah. a lot. Um, there, 
there's one other thing that we just have to address, and that is, as you know, there are people who uh, poo-poo code uh, ORMs rather than code generators, mm-hmm. uh, ORM systems, because um, the in because in corporate environments and big corporate projects, you you may get into these situations where the code generator does something some way, and you run up against a brick wall that you just architecturally can't get around. How, and and what I want to ask you is, I mean, obviously these situations are out there. Do you ever get emails from people who are in these situations that are, you know, where they they've run up against a brick wall and they've invested a lot of time in an in an ORM, and then something happens and and they can't go any further without a modification of the software. Well, uh, we release all the runtime libraries and code generation engines uh, as source code to the customers. And a lot of uh, customers actually make adjustments to it uh, to, to to match their own way of uh, how it should be uh, added to their own project. And Interesting. also uh, uh, our templates are, of course, in text. And we have an SDK, we have a template editor. So uh, a lot of users actually add code to the templates or hmm. uh, right. um, write additional templates to, to, uh, to modify certain routines that are that are overridable. But also, um, uh, customers come to me and say, well, um, I want to have that routine uh, virtual because uh, then I can override it. I can add ad- additional stuff, for example, uh, soft delete. There, mm-hmm. are co- there are people who uh, want to never delete any row. Right. right. Um, I don't know why, but... Uh, well, I understand why they want to keep the data, but uh, soft deletes are... Sarbanes-Oxley, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> well, right, Richard? Yeah, no, I couldn't argue with that. And, and But you're right, you've got to tolerate these sort of situations where... Yeah. Uh, things are, are, rules are different in a given company. And, and I guess that's the real strength of store procedures is that abstraction. You don't actually know what the database is doing and it's none of your business. Yeah. You just yeah. said, delete this. What it did, uh, it said, okay, I did. What it actually did isn't the issue. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so, so you're saying that you, you don't have, you've never had a situation that couldn't be solved by a, uh, Using the source code, or you know, modifying the source code, or modifying templates. Well, there was one situation where um, uh, they had uh, um, uh, their own classes for entities, and they want to. Uh, they didn't have enough time to mi- to migrate the rest of the application to the, en- the entities of uh, uh, LBL because we use a, a common base class, um, and we don't use the, the the native classes written by the uh, customer, wow. so uh, they had to migrate one hierarchy in another hierarchy, like customer order order details in their classes into our hierarchy, and that was uh, too complex to do. Well, I think that's understandable. Uh, that yeah, yeah and that's a different situation. That's where they have some existing entities. Um, let me just ask you, Franz, um, is there any? Shout-outs that you want to give or anything you want to plug or last words? Anything cool you've used lately? Um, no. no. <laughs> well, <laughs> all right. <laughs> well, okay. That, that sounds really boring. Um, <laughs> but, well, 
let me just say, oh, the show is uh, is published after uh, the code camp of next week. So yes, yes, that too. And I know you were going to talk about uh, ORM work there. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, I hope it went well. <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome. You, you guys are having too much fun with time shifting here. Hey, you going to be? Are you going to be uh, in the Netherlands in September at SDC? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I actually doing a session uh, uh, ORMs versus type datasets. How cool is that? Excellent, because we're both going to be there that's too. Our, that's our proposal. I don't know if it's uh, going to be accepted. But. Well, we're both going to be there, and we'll be okay. doing a .NET Rock show, and I think a Monday's show. Yeah, I don't know for sure yet, and we our proposals haven't been accepted yet either. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> Although by the time anybody hears this show, it probably will have. Of course. <laughs> Isn't it funny to be arrive here at this date and not know what's actually going on? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. Okay, Franz. Well, thanks a lot for joining us. It's been a fabulous conversation, and uh, I can honestly say we've covered ORM to death now. I, I think yeah, so, too. I think okay. we've got a spectrum now that I really wanted to reach of uh, you know the different styles and the successful products, and I'm really glad you were able to finish it up for us, Franz. Okay, thank you, and thank you for having me on the show. You're very welcome. Thanks for being here. Okay. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got transmitter bands by the FCC. Yes, I'm a...